I would say no matter whether you feel welcome or unwelcome, whether you feel confident or unconfident, go for it. Wine is a space for everyone. Hospitality is a space for everyone. People often ask me how I find guests for this podcast and and how I fit this podcast into my life as a journalist and person. Uh, So, yeah, I'll tell a little story about how I met today's guest, Izzy Simon. I was reporting on a spectacular champagne lunch uh, celebrating Egli Ure Grower Champagne. The lunch was at Cutler & Co and I was writing about it for Gourmet Traveller magazine. I was seated at a table with a bunch of sommeliers and wine professionals um, and they were all super engaging uh, but um, Probably my favourite, let's just say it, was Izzy Simon. Um, she's a yeah, young woman in wine, um, super articulate. I loved everything that she had to say. Um, she works at Rathdown Cellars, an indie wine store in Melbourne. Wine buying, overseeing stock, and also in marketing and comms. Izzy, welcome to the podcast. Wowee, that, that is an introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, Yeah, we had a lovely day. It was such a wonderful place to meet. I I don't think I'm always that glamorous. Uh, It was a good day for all of us. (laughs) I think, you know, the champagne lifted us all into the stratosphere, don't you think? Um, Yeah. Maybe just set the scene for people who weren't lucky like we were to be there. Um, Well, for those who haven't been to Cutler & Co before, it is like a world unto its own. Uh, you walk off um, bustling Gertrude Street and you end up in this totally sleek, welcoming, warming kind of dark little atmosphere and it's basically just filled with a whole lot of people who are really excited to be drinking champagne. I mean, what could go wrong? Nothing. It was just a fantastic day. And tell us a little bit about the champagne that was being highlighted. Mm, yeah, so we were tasting with um, Eglurier, which is uh, when you look at the labels, um, impossible to pronounce. Uh, but yeah, Eglurier. They are a fantastic grower champagne producer with um, lots of history. They're well known for their incredible sort of contributions to grower champagne and kind of the um, the artistry of champagne as um, grow producers, which I don't know if it's a universal term, but a grow producer is basically uh, the producers in champagne that grow their own grapes and make wines from the grapes that they grow. Um, they're sort of a little bit closer to, you know, farmers who tend their own fruit and veg and then make produce out of it, um, where a lot of Bigger houses, you know, bigger brands and things that exist in Champagne are more likely to buy fruit. These guys are a little bit closer to kind of the uh, the earth that they tend, as it were. Um, it was a really special day for everyone, definitely. And I think so much more special because the winemakers were in the room and answering questions. Mm, yeah. I mean, being able to meet these people and talk to them about their craft, no one can tell you better than they can what it's like to be there and how they make it. And, you know, you learn all these fantastic things that you just can't get if you're not talking to them. And, I mean, as a as a person that works in wine, what does it do f- to, for you as a professional to be in such a setting? Uh, I think it it gives you a window that you wouldn't otherwise have. Um A lot of the learning that we do, and I think particularly in Australia where we're so isolated from these European regions, you learn from books. 
I learned everything I knew from books. You know, you have to get out into the uh, vineyards. You have to go and talk to producers. And um, when people like, you know, the group Babendum, the uh, importers who bring Egleria into the country, bring these people over, it gives us a really kind of unique experience to be able to meet these people that you read about um, and pick their brains, see what, what's actually going on. And then how does that translate into your work? Like does, is there other than snippets that you share with customers? Like how does, it, how does that sort of play out? I think yes and no. Um, you have to be really careful when you're talking to people about the kind of nitty-gritty because at the core of it, and I think anyone who's in an academic field of any kind, when you're talking about what you're interested in and you're a big nerd, it's very easy to alienate people very quickly. <laughs> Most customers don't want to hear about, you know, the um, the, the malic acid uh, transferring in the bottle and becoming this, you know, they don't want to hear about the kind of nitty gritty. But um, when it comes to the kind of more romantic side of things, it definitely helps, you know, to be able to um, paint a picture for people. Yeah, well, I think that's what I really loved um, about what you said because you were talking about like, the blood and the rose petals and the steel that you could taste. And, I mean, you know, I said you were my fave, but there were other amazing comments coming around the table, you know, um, the sommelier from uh, Rosetta who talked about, you know, it took him back to the beach in Brittany and in the rain or whatever it was. Like there was a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of poetry as well as a lot of, you know, technical expertise on display. Um but, I mean, would you say that that experience, because to me it felt quite collegial, is that, is, that, um, is that the norm in these kinds of events? Well, I agree. We had a great table. Um, we were surrounded by some really, really lovely people. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's two answers to that question. There's, there's the easy to digest one and then there's the one that you have to chew a little bit harder. Um, People we will- love chewing here. <laughs> okay. I'll, gi- I'll give you the, the, the polite answer first, which is, you know, when you get a good group of people and you get people who are passionate and interested, like the people that we were sitting with, of course it's great. Um, there's, you know, wonderful people in wine and they are as nerdy and dorky and romantic and silly as I am. Um, but, of course, you know, it's not always like that. That was like a really rare and wonderful tasting, like, Everyone there was happy to be there. Everyone was happy to have a chat. We were all just so excited and, you know, had our breath taken away by these wonderful wines. But, um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not always like that. Mm, okay. Because I suppose, you know, as a, as a person who likes wine but doesn't know much about it, um, I often – I don't think I'm alone in thinking that wine can be sort of an, an intimidating playing field. But can it also feel like that for the people that are working in it? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> I um I remember the first uh, official wine event that I went to. I was maybe twenty, which wasn't really that long ago, but it feels like a long time. Um, I was completely overwhelmed. I like it, it was a terrifying experience, and I walked up to the head winemaker of the winery that was hosting this event, and I said, "Hi, I'm." Izzy, it's nice to meet you. I'm really underwhelmed to be here. <laughs> just like completely, I just, oh, I wanted to crawl up and die. Um, <laughs> obviously, I meant overwhelmed and I don't think that feeling ever really goes away. 
I think when you first enter these kind of things, it can be really intimidating and you meet some strong characters. Uh, it's like any field where there are people who feel they're very knowledgeable. You meet some people who really kind of want to gatekeep and they're not welcoming. And um, if you don't look a certain way or if you don't fit into a pretty typical mold, there are definitely, um, you know, spaces in wine where people who are not of a certain demographic are, are not super welcome. Interesting. Um, we recently had a chat on the podcast with Namisha Dale Cully from Wildflower talking about beer and, and what it's like to be a woman working in craft beer. When, when you speak about demographics that are welcome and perhaps less welcome, are women uh, one, of those, um, one of those demographics? Historically, no, I would say not. Um, these days, of course, it's a lot better. Um, I, I'm relatively young and I think I've it's been a blessing and a curse because I definitely, when I got into the wine industry, uh, there were not many people who looked like me. And I've seen even in just the kind of short time that I've been in the industry, a lot of change. But yeah, no, it's not been historically a, a female-led space. It's not been a queer-led space. It's not been a POC-led space. You know, there's a lot of different um, demographics and minorities that are not uh, men. Uh, who really struggle to kind of find their footing. Mm. I mean, do you think that that translates to women winemakers? Because, I mean, we had we had um, the Egley's uh, father and daughter who were there, so Clemence Egley, the next generation, I think reasonably unusual in the grower champagne um, field to be, you know, a, a woman who has this prominent position making this world-renowned wine. Um, but do you think that there's... Uh, is it harder for women winemakers to find a place because the wine buying and sommelier side of things is male dominated? Um, hmm. How, how's your French history? Can I uh, <laughs> Can I hit you with a, a, a long-winded anecdote about a French history? Um, so the Napoleonic Code. Uh, anyone who's done CMS or WSET is rolling their eyes at me right now. It's like a, a classic thing that comes up in your wine education. Um, one of the biggest effects on the wine industry by the Napoleonic Code was the way that the French divided assets. Um, and it forced uh, basically landholders had to divide their assets equally amongst their sons. So not their daughters, their sons. For that reason, you have vineyards in Burgundy that say they have 100 vines. There's 200 owners. Um, you know, people own like individual little meters of uh, grapes and things. And there was basically like a historically a division of assets that focused solely on male heirs. So for a very long time, there was legally entrenched uh, means to exclude daughters in French winemaking. However, that's not the case anymore. Um, obviously, there is now, you know, many generations of French winemakers who've passed down their vines and passed down their businesses, regardless of the gender of their children, to, you know, the most passionate and to the one who wants to make the wine. Um, and it stopped being about, you know, my strongest son and it started being about, you know, the person who's going to make the wine best, the person who loves it and who sees the promise in it. And I think Clemence is definitely an example of someone who, you know, she could have gone and done anything. She's an incredibly intelligent and capable person. 
um, regardless of her gender. And she came back to the family and she she's making the wine and that's what she wanted to do. But, you know, there is historically precedent that separates women out of the process. Mm, that's really interesting because I, I met a winemaker yesterday um, Emily and her label is ECK Wines. Do you know? Do you know her from Northern Victoria? Um, I just love the wine, and I did have a, a special. I don't know. I just love drinking wine made by women, um, and I'm sure that that's um, that's like a political lens. But it's is it? I don't know. And you don't want to be reductive and say, oh, it just it tastes somehow different. But I don't know. I guess you relate to wine in so many different ways and for so many different reasons. And I think, um, yeah, I, I feel like positively discriminating um, towards women who make wine. Hey, I am all for positive discrimination and you can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're quoting yourself by saying it on the podcast. Oh, no, I'm on the record. Uh, I understand what you mean. Um, and I, I think that the kind of um, the stories behind wine is a big part of what makes us love it. So, you know, if there's a story that you identify with, you are a woman of course, you're going to identify with a female winemaker and perhaps you'll kind of relate to what she's trying to express in her wine. Um, I don't think anyone would give you nearly as much of a hard time if you said, you know, I really identify with a female painter who is painting a subject matter that is, um, you know, inherently female or inherently kind of feminine and that you identify with because you can see the story that they're telling. Um, and I'm sure there are some female winemakers out there or male winemakers or gender-fluid winemakers who, you know, they put a bit of themselves into their wine. So, you know, I'm sure there is a reason why you identify with them. Um, I tend to find, for me, you know, there's there's definitely female winemakers who I adore and I respect, but it's it's not always about their gender. It's the fact that they are, you know, they are craftspeople who are good at what they do, and I have to admire that. Yeah, this wine was a... A Pinot Noir Syrah blend, which I also thought was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just like juicy, crunchy red blends. You're seeing more kind of um, Pinot Syrah blends and there's kind of a history behind it. Um, in uh, Burgundy, they used to call it hermitaging, where they would get uh, kind of the really ripe grapes from Hermitage and they'd put it in their slightly insipid, underripe Burgundy in order to make it a bit bigger and beefier and juicier. But in Australia, we do it just because it's bloody delicious. Yeah, it was so delicious. I felt like it was really very, it was, it was quite delicate and pretty, but then it had this kind of really uh, sort of an intensity and a body that really came through, um, yeah, at the end. It was mm. very cool. You should um, you should look into Nature of the Beast. Um, she's a lovely winemaker and she's got this Barbera out at the moment and it just, it has this, mouth sucking acidity this like succulence this dubiness i could almost not describe it in actual tasting notes it's more of like a feel when you take a little sip and it just kind of sits in your mouth like the perfect ripe raspberry and then it just goes ping and it explodes and it has that kind of real draw um Yum. I love it. I think that'll get you too. It's sort of in that like a little bit winter warmery, but a little bit brighter. It's got a bit of spice. It's got great kind of varietal character from Barbera. It's really good. Awesome. Thank you. Um, So Izzy, let's track back and, you know, let's talk about you in hospitality, you in wine. How did you get into this world? What drew you in? God, uh, 
I think my relationship with hospitality came pretty much from my mother, my lovely mum, Deb. She worked in hospitality herself. She was, I say chef, she'll tell you she's a cook. Um, she always was around the house cooking and she was a great host. Um, in my house, you know, we always had people around. We always had plates full of food and these big, tall, high piles of salads that she used to make that just had like the epitome of hospitality and warmth to them. You know, people knew they could come to our house and have a wonderful meal by my mum. And so I think hospitality was kind of bred in the bone. I was never going to escape it. Uh, I got into a degree that I hated, which I immediately dropped out of, and I started working full-time in cafes. And cafes are kind of a gateway drug. You get into cafes and then you get into coffee and then you get into bars and cocktails and then you get into wine and and then it's a decade later and <laughs> all of your qualifications are in wine. <laughs> You're like, oh, my goodness, how did this happen? Well, what was it about? What was it? Was it the opportunity to learn? Was it that you loved wine? Like why? Yeah, what led you? To be honest, I don't know if this will paint me in a great light. But the first time I started really looking into wine seriously as a career was um, <laughs> sort of a passive-aggressive reaction to someone telling me I couldn't. I said, rude, no, how dare you? I absolutely will. I- I'd asked to take part in a wine training um, and I was told by the uh, the male staff member running the training that I couldn't because then who would answer the phones? and I just I got irritated and so I said okay well stuff you and so I bought books and I'd already been you know kind of in and around wine a lot I had lots of friends who drank wine and I I wanted to understand and kind of keep up with my peers and I wanted to be able to walk into a wine store and uh, be able to pick something for myself or read a wine list in a restaurant and pick a bottle Um, and it just kind of sucked me in yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess spite is a good, as good a motivation as any. <laughs> uh, was it, I mean, when you started educating yourself, what was it? Was it the stories? Was it the technical wizardry? You know, or was it everything? I, I've always been caught by, um, I keep on using the word romance. I always get caught by the romance of wine. You know, there's these sultry, fascinating worlds that kind of draw you in. The way that people describe wine, I mean, hearing other people talk about wine, I think, was one of the most engaging things in the early days. I remember specific descriptors from specific people so vividly. There was um, this one guy I worked with who said a glass of wine smelled like a fresh can of tennis balls. Oh, wow. It's, it's just, it's such a sensory, tactile thing. I mean, we all know what that smells like when you open that like tube of four tennis balls. It's like that plastic cylinder and you can smell it and you can feel fuzzy tennis balls. And there was another friend who sadly isn't with us anymore, but I remember him telling me, he handed me a glass of wine, he said, smell it. And I was like, God, what the hell is that? That is bizarre. I hate it. <laughs> And he said it's it's horses and band-aids. It's like you fell over at the races and you got a scrape on your knee. Um, I later found out that that is actually a wine fault called Britannomyces, but um, 
it's just like that idea of tripping over at the races, you know. It, it's scent is such an evocative uh, uh, memory uh, trigger, you know, the way that you remember things. People are often very triggered by uh, scent and smell, and I think having these memories tied to these scents and then smelling a wine and having it take you somewhere or hearing people tell you about where it takes them, it's fascinating. What about remembering all this stuff? Because that always blows me away that, you know, you could have a big wine list, you could point to a wine and then a, a good sommelier can not only know about it but tailor what they tell you to how they perceive your interest and, you know, existing knowledge. Yeah. It's, um, it's an art. <laughs> not to toot my own horn. Uh, but <laughs> you can <laughs> let me toot my own horn um it, it's a learned skill I think it's definitely something I worked very hard on um as far as remembering it I mean I studied like any other thing you, you study and you learn and some people will go down the kind of directed um educational paths I did and I'm I'm very glad that I did but I don't think it's uh, a necessary thing in our industry um some people just have it uh one of the things about um, hospitality and being a sommelier and that kind of thing is it kind of really um, it it attracts people who innately have that kind of performative sense and you have to be able to relate to people. Um, the worst psalms are the kinds who can't uh, correlate those two things, who can't um, simultaneously be knowledgeable and also be personable. No one likes asking about a wine and then being told the history of the, the grape, you know. It's like knowing how to give a recommendation while also being knowledgeable in your field is a skill. Yeah, so true. Um, so, Izzy, did you work in restaurants as a sommelier and what's been the pathway to Rathdown Cellars? I did. I, um, I, I think I mentioned I started off in cafes and – Eventually, I worked at a couple of restaurants. I kind of worked a lot around Melbourne. I've been at a couple of restaurants. Um, I eventually ended up at City Wine Shop, which is where I was for the majority of the time that I was doing um, my WSET, which is uh, the Wine Spirits Education Trust. And then I did my CMS, which is um, the Court of Master Sommelier. Uh, so I did pretty much all of that while I was at City Wine Shop, which uh, speak to anyone who worked with me there. It was a busy year for me. I don't think I slept <laughs> at all, ever. Uh, eventually, I started at Carlton Wine Room, um, which was great. I worked with lovely Andy and Travis who were there, and that was my first kind of official SOM job. Uh, at City Wine Shop, you know, we all sell wine. You're all on the floor and you'll kind of have to know. But, yeah, Carlton Wine Room was my first some job, but um, unfortunately it didn't last very long because I was there for about four months before the pandemic happened. Yeah. Oh, yikes. Big yikes. Um, I'm grateful for the time that I had there and I still have a great relationship with those guys, but unfortunately I was casual, so I didn't have a job anymore. And the day that I found out the news, I went down to my local bottle shop, Rathdown Cellars. I said to the lovely guy at the counter, Oh my god! I just I need a beer and a job. Can I have one of those things from you? And he said, uh, "Actually, I think I can help you out with both." <laughs> I ended up um, driving the van there for a long time, and now I'm at Rathdown Cellars, pretty much full time as a wine buyer. 
Wow, that's really amazing. Now, just back to your qualifications, just because most, most people probably won't know if that's like a big deal or not. Can you just put those qualifications in context? Ooh, yeah, I can. Um, I'm sure some will roll their eyes at me. I think WSET Level 3 and Court of Masters, I would equate to kind of like a bachelor's degree, thereabouts. Um, they don't take the same amount of time. Um, the Court of Masters, there's no classes. It's all self-driven study and it's a lot about kind of um, – Communal learning, it, the best way to do it is to kind of get a team of people around you and to be doing tasting groups and study. Um, WSET is a little bit more structured. You do classes and it takes about 12 weeks, I think. But, yeah, the amount of um, learning that you do is pretty full on. Okay. And um, what's it like working at Rathdown Cellars? Tell us about the tell us about the store and the community around it. Well, Rathdown is... Tucked away in a little pocket of Carlton North that is completely unchanged by time. It's very old school. It's very um, kind of community-minded. Uh, we're a little village. Everyone knows everyone's business. Uh, so it's a really nice place to work. It's really um, – it's been a big change. I mean, it's a retail setting. So the kind of fast-paced nightlife lifestyle that I was leading uh, – really had to change in order to make Rathdown work, which I think has been a good thing for me. Uh, but it's definitely – it's more slower paced. I, I get to walk around a little bit more. Sometimes I get to sit down, which is really nice. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, yeah, wow. Luxury. Um, and how do you see the future rolling out? At the moment we're looking to the future in terms of um, – you know, how people's buying kind of changes with, you know, the recession and with the way that kind of cost of living has changed. Um, we've learnt throughout the pandemic that uh, people think of wine and of, you know, beverage as a necessity. Um, we've definitely been very lucky. We had a really uh, busy time throughout the pandemic, um, which is great. You know, we're so grateful for the community that kept us afloat and for the fact that people – uh, ranked us pretty much just under banks in terms of necessities during the pandemic. Um, and it's definitely slowing down. You know, we're, we're back to a normal pace, which means that we can kind of sit back a little bit, kind of get back more into the community. We've started doing some more tastings. Uh, we do tastings most Saturdays, um, which is really nice, just being able to kind of get people into the shop, uh, tasting with us and sharing those kind of experiences, getting talking, trying new things. But, um, yeah, at the moment we're really looking to the future in terms of um, continuing to serve the community that surrounds us, which is kind of our number one priority, while also kind of making sure that we're growing and learning and still seeing new wine and bringing in new winemakers and keeping across this really kind of never-ending, changing, diverse industry. Mm. I mean, with the cost of living and, you know, many people tightening their belts, watching their spending, how do you how do you sort of account for that? You know, is it still that people will spend on a special bottle for an occasion or is it that you need to have more cheaper offerings available? How do you how do you sort of play that out? I think we talked about this at the uh, the lunch, which was a really nice conversation to have with um, lots of different SOMs because it's definitely uh, different for us in retail based on the way that people buy. Um, 
I think that the unanimous agreement, and a lot of people will be finding this, is if we're to talk about the way that people spend money on wine and food and a bell curve, the middle of the market right now is falling away. You know, the big spenders are still big spenders. Um, people with money are not as affected by these kind of belt tightening moments. Um, and the people who are kind of at the low end of the spectrum who have always been buying the cheaper stuff, they're kind of buying in similar patterns. Where we're really seeing a change in the market is kind of right in the middle. It's, um, you know, the kind of little bit more premium, but not quite, a few more a week. You know, people are, are gravitating towards better value. They're looking for kind of safer bets, I find. You know, I think people are less willing to um, adventure, which is a shame. But, you know, I understand it. If you're only going to buy one bottle a week and you're going to buy one really nice bottle, it's kind of nice to know that it's going to be something you're going to really like. So, you know, people are looking for safety right now. Yeah, that is – that's – I don't know. I get it. But yeah, I agree. It's a bit sad um, because you also think about the flow on, you know, it means that do people have to start making their wine safer and does it sort of slow down creativity? Mm. Well, that, I mean, that's where things like tastings come into it. I mean, being able to welcome people into the shop and kind of get a glass of wine in their hands, hey, hey, try this. That's where that stuff can be really kind of beneficial to get people still like tasting and still adventuring and still getting to know things and coming to get excited like we are. Um, and it's not to say that it, it never happens. Um, people, I feel like we really learned this throughout the pandemic and never more so than we did before. People love to love things and food and wine are things that people love. So it'll never go away. Um, the monetary strain of course, people are going to manage it in their own ways, and they have to. But um, I don't want to give people so little credit because I think it's still out there. And when you can get something in their glass that really just sets their mind ablaze and gets their senses kind of tingling, that, that's when you catch them and that's when people kind of really come alive. Mm, beautifully said. Um, Izzy, if there's someone listening to this, um, perhaps they are a young woman and they're wondering, they think, oh, I'm really interested in why and I wouldn't mind taking this further, what kind of tips could you give them about forging a career? Well, if anyone tells you no, you tell them to. Wait, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> Yes, you can say what you want. <laughs> Let me say that entire sentence again. If I would tell them that if anyone tells them no, tell them to fuck off. I would say no matter whether you feel welcome or unwelcome, whether you feel confident or unconfident, go for it. Wine is a space for everyone. Hospitality is a space for everyone make allies, meet new people, um, find other young women. I mean, come and talk to me. I'm at Rathdown Cellars most of the week. I love having a chat. I love when people come and talk to me about wine and particularly if they're young and interested. Um, some of the people that kind of led me into the wine industry were women who were willing to give me the time of day. Um, you know, there's great people out there. There's great female wine writers out there. Uh, reading Jancis Robinson, I, I, I love her stuff. I love everything that she writes. Um, Karen McNeil's Wine Bible, uh, Jane Lopes, her book Vignette. You know, there's 
there's people out there and there's people who will welcome you in. So if at first you don't succeed, go and talk to the next person. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So I would imagine that if you are at a wine tasting like you were when you were, quote, underwhelmed, like if you're so nervous at a tasting, like I reckon that must lock your senses up and it must be really hard to get the most from the experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's tricky and it, it's intimidating. It's frightening. Um, everyone has said the wrong thing before. 99% of the people in the room are not thinking about your terrible tasting note. They're thinking about their terrible tasting note. Um, I have, this is like a niche wine thing, but I have in a blind tasting called a, a Malbec, a Valpolicella Reserva, which is a mortifying experience for me. But you know what? I survived. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's all subjective. Um, if you don't feel like you can talk or if you don't want to say anything out loud, that's okay. Listen. Um, I've sat next to some really great people in tastings and I've been grateful for their presence just beside me. I had the pleasure of um, sitting next to Leanne Altman at a Sean Smith tasting a little while ago. I don't know Leanne, but I respect her. I know a lot about her work and even just sitting next to her, listening to her kind of lead the conversation made me feel a little bit more empowered and then I put up my hand and said something just because, you know, the presence of other people and their strength can be empowering. So just for people who don't know, Leanne's the um, head. Leanne's the yeah, head buyer and um, head of the group, the Trader House group. She's a really wonderful figure in wine in Melbourne. Yeah, and um, having had the pleasure of speaking to her before, she's definitely a, a demystifier and and opens the gate. She's not a gatekeeper. Yeah, love that. Izzy, um, it's such a pleasure to chat to you again. I really appreciate your perspective um, and your encouragement to other people who are wanting to to find their way in this fascinating industry, um, which, yeah, poetry and pleasure, I mean, it's not too bad a world. There are much worse worlds to be in. I'm always happy when I have a glass of wine in my hand. Love it. Well, thank you for um, sharing with us today and, yeah, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.